Good evening, everybody. Welcome to our Pride Month event here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. My name is Graham Dozier. I'm Publications Managing Editor here at the museum and the Virginia Stabney Editor of the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. Uh, welcome to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Um, we would like to wish, we, excuse me, we'd like to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Now, while you silence your little electronic devices, I'll mention our next lecture, which will take place here on July 14th at noon. That day, Daniel Thorpe, professor of history at Virginia Tech, will speak on the subject of his latest book, In the True Blues Wake, Slavery and Freedom Among the Families of Smithfield Plantation. Now for tonight's program. Queer history is a living practice. Talk to any group of LGBTQ people today, and they will not agree on what story should be told. In her li book, Living Queer History, Samantha Rosenthal tells the story of a small city on the edge of Appalachia, interweaving historical analysis, theory, and memoir. Rosenthal tells the story of their own journey, coming out and transitioning as a transgender woman in the midst of working on a community-based history project that documented a multi-generational Southern LGBTQ community. Based on over 40 interviews with elders, Living Queer History explores how queer people today think about the past and how history lives on in the present. Samantha Rosenthal is Associate Professor of History and Coordinator of the Public History Concentration at Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia. They are the author of two books, Beyond Hawaii, Native Labor in the Pacific World, and Living Queer History, Remembrance and Belonging in a Southern City, and co-founder of the so Southwest Virginia LGBTQ Plus History Project, a queer public history initiative based in Roanoke, Virginia. Samantha's work as an author and with the history, excuse me, <clears throat> as an author has been recognized with awards and honorable mentions from National Council of Public History, the Oral History Association, the Committee on Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender History, the American Society for Environmental History, and the Working Class Studies Association. Samantha currently serves on the governing board of the Committee in, <clears throat> in, on Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender History, and on the editorial board of the Public Historian. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Samantha is a committed queer feminist and anti-racist activist and community organizer. They are particularly passionate about mentoring young queer and trans people in Southwest Virginia. So please give a warm VMHC and Pride Month welcome to Samantha Rosenthal. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for having me. Where am I gonna put this? Okay. Um, yeah, thanks for having me during Pride Month. This is wonderful. I appreciate the museum inviting me to give this talk, which shows that LGBTQ history is Virginia history. Virginia history is queer. Um, 
queer history belongs in our conversations about LG, about Virginia, about Virginia history. So my plan for tonight is I'm going to intersperse reading some passages from the book with showing you some images from our historical research and telling you a bit about my story of how I got in, how I ended up in Roanoke and ended up um, for the past seven plus years doing community-based queer history work and how it has changed me. So I wanna start with a reading. This is from the introduction to the book. Oh, I'll also point out at the end of the lecture, we'll have time for Q&A and there'll be a microphone available if there are questions and I'm happy to answer those. And then I'll be signing copies of the book out in the lobby after the book talk. I did not pack the right clothes for a funeral. I emptied my luggage onto the floor, spilling out colorful dresses and skirts, blouses and flats, makeup and jewelry, all evidence of a nascent trans life. That summer was supposed to be the beginning of my becoming, a fork in the road on my gender journey. Just one month earlier at a Christian summer camp in Southwest Virginia, transformed if momentarily into a queer oasis. I told my friends that I'd like them to refer to me as they. More specifically, for an entire week in the Appalachian Mountains, I wore a clunky construction paper name tag around my neck, loosely held together by a single thread of colorful yarn, and it read, Gregory, they, them. By midsummer, I was living in a cramped sublet in Brooklyn, my summer writing cave. I threw an outfit together and hustled out the door. From Flatbush, I moved along a seemingly endless series of subway lines to a small Jewish funeral home on a busy street corner in Forest Hills, Queens. I had settled on a simple black blouse, a thin necklace, actually the one I'm wearing, red denim skinny jeans, and black ballet flats. It was the best I could muster from the limitations of my femme wardrobe. I had not brought any of my old boy clothes with me. There I came face to face with my biological parents and my aunt and my uncle, the Jewish diaspora all reunited in one room. Three years earlier, I had first tried coming out to my parents at the not so tender age of 31. I remember, I remember they reacted with worry and concern to my coming out. My father sent an email warning that in sharing such personal information about my gender and sexuality with the world, I was potentially affecting my prospect of attaining academic employment. My mother wrote a longer, more personal letter. She slipped it inside an envelope and handed it to me during a rare, ill-fated visit home with my first queer girlfriend. From the funeral home, we carpooled next to a small cemetery a mile away, where we bade farewell to my mother's sister's husband's mother. She had lived to be 100. I watched her body descend into a cavern alongside other deceased members of her kin. Among them was a person whose gravestone was marked with the name Alan. 
And it was my mother's letter on that day with when I went home with my girlfriend that had introduced me to Alan. He was her sister's husband's brother. My mom said that Alan, like me, had been in a heterosexual marriage. His marriage, like mine, had fallen apart. He had subsequently come out as gay. Alan paid the ultimate price for those actions, she explained. He contracted HIV and died in 1989. One of this country's hundreds of thousands of people who have died from the HIV AIDS crisis. My mom suggested that I too would face great peril if I lived a queer life. I hadn't known any of this about Alan. I didn't even know that he had lived. Her words hurt so much that I hid the letter or I destroyed it. I can't really remember which, and to this day I cannot find it. In the heat of that summer day with the sun beating down upon us, I could not stop staring at Alan's grave. I wondered what it meant, if anything, for me to be standing right there in front of him in my blouse and ballet flats and jewelry. Would he have recognized something of himself in me? Would I have seen something of myself in him? I was only six when he died and no one ever spoke of him or about any of our family's long history of queerness until I was 31, until I forced it out from my parents through the trauma of my own coming out journey and the reaction to it. My parents seemingly remembered Alan's life only as a cautionary tale, only relevant in this moment because their own son threatened to replicate his perceived mistakes. My coming out reconnected my mother with a history of queer trauma from her own past. There was so much mystery surrounding my family's queerness. But why? At the conclusion of the funeral, my mom walked up to Alan's grave and placed a small pebble on top of the blue gray stone bearing his name. In Jewish custom, this is a common ritual performed to remember those who have passed. She was remembering a friend and remembering the ways in which the AIDS crisis and American LGBTQ history more broadly touched our family and changed our lives. It would continue to change our lives. This is a picture of me when I first came out, um, which I share to illustrate that queerness is not linear. And um, the person that I came out as is not the same person I am now eight years later. Uh, but this is from my first Pride Parade. This is in Boston after the end of the Pride March down at City Hall. Um, and this was the summer of 2015. It's about a year after I came out. It was the summer when I transitioned from living in New York, which is my ancestral home where my family has been from for generations, to move to Roanoke. I had accepted a job at Roanoke College I moved out of Brooklyn. I spent the summer in Boston um, doing odd things on my way to Virginia. It's not actually on the way to Virginia, but, <laughs> but I ended up in Boston and this was my first pride event seven summers ago. 
Two months later, September 2015, I took this photo and other photos in Roanoke. This is on Jefferson Street in downtown Roanoke of the Roanoke Pride Parade, which doesn't exist anymore, but there still is a pride, but there's not a parade anymore. And this was within a month of having shown up in Roanoke, Virginia. As I write about in the book, I, I, my marriage had fallen apart. I came out and I got my PhD all within 12 month period and left New York and took this job in Southwest Virginia when I had never lived south of the Verrazano Bridge in Brooklyn. Uh, so I didn't know what to expect and having just come out at the age of 31 and starting my life over, I was kind of afraid. And I came with all the stereotypes that a New Yorker would have about the South and about Appalachia. And I thought that this would not be a good place to be queer. This would not be a good place to be out. And in fact, I had strategically closeted myself when I applied for the job at Roanoke College and I presented as a straight man. And then when I showed up, I realized that I had to I had to actually tell people now because um, I was also beginning to change my gender also after I showed up in Roanoke. Um, so it was a tumultuous time for me. And as I write about in the intro to the book, I turned to queer history to guide me through this transition. It's like the overlapping transition of my gender transition, but also my Southern my Southern transition of moving my life and my future to Roanoke, which, which is home, which is now home probably for the next many decades. And, and I love it. Um, so I turned to queer history and I, I, I said, well, what do I have to offer to this community as a baby queer and a baby Southerner? And the one thing that I, the one skill I had was I had just got my PhD in history. So I started to go around to queer organizations in Roanoke, our community center, a gay church, the one gay nightclub in town, and just tell people like, I'm a historian. <laughs> um, are you interested in queer history? Like, what can we find out? What can we, what can we learn? Because I have all these skills, let's do this. So I'll tell you a bit more about the project that we started then in 2015. But I want to now, uh, before I tell you some Roanoke stories, share with you um, the first passage where I introduce Roanoke in the book. This book, someone has called this book a love letter to Roanoke, Virginia, and I think that's apt. Um, it really is such a fascinating city, small city. So this is where I first introduce Roanoke in the book. Walk around downtown Roanoke on a Saturday evening in the summertime and feast your senses on this heteronormative tableau. White middle-class men and women stroll up and down Market Street. The downtown bars brim with homogenized bros, the dark, dank interiors smelling vaguely of craft brew and old spice. Former sorority girls spill out onto the sidewalk in front of Sidewinders and Corned Beef and Company. LGBTQ people are here too, if perhaps less conspicuously. Roanoke is a diverse city. Indeed, we are told that this is among the charms of downtown. 
but I find it hard to navigate these streets. I don't feel like I'm blending in at all. People are staring at my face or at my long legs and some train their eyes for just a bit too long. Something about the overall tableau is predictable. Is this really Roanoke or is it Asheville or Greenville or some other small gentrifying Appalachian city? We're told that this is what we should want. The progressive profitability of sameness, the calming illusion of safety, the superficial facade of historicity. Civic boosters say that Roanoke is experiencing an urban renaissance. They're excited about our small city becoming, quote, the next Asheville. But what does that really mean? More hipsters, more beer, rising rents. The counterpoint to Roanoke's ascendance is and has always been the persistence of so-called undesirable people, including LGBTQ people like myself who do not conform to heteronormative capitalist expectations for appropriate urban behavior. So look out, Richmond. <laughs> And in contrast to the moralism of Jerry Falwell's Lynchburg an hour to our east, or the small Appalachian coal towns dotting the mountains to our west, Roanoke is and has always been Southwest Virginia's sin city. Roanoke is odd, permissive, and teeming with debauchery. It is a sexual city. It is a fundamentally queer place. Roanoke is a hub that's attracted queer and trans people from the surrounding regions for over half a century. I feel these histories within me as I navigate the downtown streets. LGBTQ histories reside hidden to most on street corners and in alleyways, invisible behind the city's heteronormative facade. I want people to know that this place was queer or still is or can be. It does not have to be so clean and so charming. I wish Roanoke was just a little bit more queer. But Roanoke's LGBTQ histories are submerged beneath a century of denial and at times outright efforts by the city to erase and make memoryless our former spaces of belonging. When a group of my students from Roanoke College ventured downtown in early 2017 with a digital audio recorder in hand to interview one of the most famous trans sex workers in Roanoke's history, the first thing this person let loose on them was a genealogy of queer belonging that placed her own life and the larger story of Roanoke, Virginia at the tail end of a 200 year history belying the common assumption that LGBTQ people here have no past. She spoke of, quote, her great-grandfather, who was the son of a plantation owner and a slave, and her grandmother, the product of a slave and a plantation owner, stating, quote, I am very proud of my great-grandparents who came out of the slave era, end quote. She told the story then of her grandparents who were the first in her family to attend college, and then her parents, and then her own childhood, quote, I started singing in the church when I was four years old, end quote. All of this came tumbling out of her mouth in just the first two minutes. 
we're not supposed to know this story. Christy, an African-American former transvestite sex worker, was arrested dozens of times in the 1980s and 90s. She is perhaps an unlikely community historian. But in a remarkable oral history, Christy recites not just the genealogy of her own existence, but the story of Black people with roots in Southern soil, a story that takes the listener on a journey from slavery to the present day, linking racism and the criminal justice system with LGBTQ rights and transgender community formation. Christy shows us that it's possible to queer the history of Roanoke, Virginia. There are people, places, and memories that remain here. And with careful attention, we can bring them back to life. This is a picture of Christy in her boy clothes on the steps of the Roanoke City Courthouse in 1993. This is from the Roanoke Times. The newspaper headline judge asked to toss out anti-soliciting ordinance and her name is in, in the caption, has challenged a law that has resulted in hundreds of arrests of prostitutes. So this is Christy in her boy clothes carrying a briefcase coming out of court during this long court case where she after being arrested over and over and over again by the Roanoke Police Department, uh, especially in 1992, um, leading up to this case, which was a time of heightened crackdown on trans sex workers in Roanoke, ostensibly due to the AIDS crisis, the city argued that they needed to get trans sex workers up the streets because they were diseased, um, which was an assumption they made about these workers. Um, she was arrested many, many, many times in the year leading up to this and said, I've had enough of this. I'm going to challenge this. I'm going to challenge the law that the city is using and challenge it as unconstitutional. She represented her case in court. She was the lawyer. Uh, she was her own lawyer. That's why she has a briefcase. The Roanoke Times reported that the Roanoke Times reporter was astounded by uh, Christie's demeanor in the courtroom. She was able to cite case law from the top of her head uh, without referring to any printed materials. The judge reportedly was very frustrated with Christie because sometimes she would show up to court dressed as a woman and sometimes show up dressed as a man. And she said at one point, you need to come dressed as a man all the time. And she said, no. <laughs> so it's just kind of a remarkable uh, case, kind of a uh, David versus Goliath case of a black trans sex worker defending herself in court against the city of Roanoke. And she won. So just kind of amazing story. She won and the city's anti-prostitution law was thrown out as unconstitutional. So, you know, and but this is a story, this is almost 30 years ago that has been completely forgotten. It's not told at our Roanoke History Museum. Uh, it's not told here yet, the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Um, it's not published in any writing about Roanoke's history. 
So it's it's not knowable, except that this was a, a newspaper clipping we found in a manila folder in a file cabinet in the back of a room at the Roanoke Public Library. And we were able to use, because they printed her legal name in here, uh, that actually helped us to be able to track her down thir almost 30, 25 years later, when we and we were able to interview her and do an oral history and hear her her side of her life from in her own words. It's just amazing. So that's an example of some of the queer histories to be found in a place like Roanoke. And I would argue probably in any city or town across this country, there are stories like this that we just do not yet know about because we haven't done the work to find them. So how do we do queer history? Um, I want to talk a bit about some of the methods that we've used in Roanoke over the past seven years. One of them is archives. So I know that there's like uh, archival collections here in this institution. There are archives in Roanoke at the public library at the Virginia Room, um, who is, they've, they've become our partner for our archives. But if you if you showed up in Roanoke when I did in 2015 and went to the Virginia Room to look for LGBTQ related material, there's nothing. There had been no history of collecting specifically those materials. This is true of most libraries and archives and museums around the country that there has historically been no focus on collecting these materials, which means a lot of them have been destroyed, have been are missing, et cetera. So this was true in Roanoke. There was nothing when I showed up that we could look at and say, oh, here's queer history. So we had to create an archive. And so we started to do these events where we would show up at LGBTQ spaces in the city. Um, and I would train students with the legal forms for accessioning uh, materials. And we had a, we partnered and we still partner with the Roanoke Public Libraries. They would take on these materials as part of a permanent LGBTQ collection, which they would start. And so we showed up at places like the gay nightclub in Roanoke. Uh, and as people came in the door of the nightclub, um, well, we advertise in advance for people to bring their stuff, show up at the nightclub, bring your old flyers, your old newsletters, that kind of thing. We went to different churches. There were gay-friendly churches and did events after church services on Sundays to collect materials. We did events at the LGBT community center in town. And to date, we've had maybe about 15 different donors, which doesn't sound like a lot, but we have over six uh, cubic boxes of archival materials now from Roanoke's gay history, where before there was zero. And the image I'm showing you is the front page of the very first issue of the first known gay publication in Roanoke, the Big Lick Gazette. Um, if you don't know Roanoke's history, before Roanoke was a city, it was called it was the town of Big Lick, it's referred to like a salt lick. But for gay, but the gay innuendo is so great. So, <laughs> so in 1971, gay activists in Roanoke, inspired by the Stonewall uprising in New York two years earlier, which was the founding of the modern gay rights movement the gay liberation movement. These activists in Roanoke formed the Gay Alliance of the Roanoke Valley in uh, someone's apartment. That apartment right now is actually my endocrinologist's office where I get hormones. So totally wild. It's a small city. Um, but in that very apartment, founded the first gay liberation group in 1971 and published the Big Lick Gazette. We have 
all the issues of the Gazette. We have all the issues of groups after this that published newsletters um, from 1971 to the present. I think we've found all of the gay publications in Roanoke, including a lesbian newsletter in the 80s, and um, including the longest running newsletter in Southwest Virginia, 25 years, which we have all 25 years of. We're missing a few issues, but. And we've been working for seven years to digitize these materials, which is why we have this image here. We are partnered with JSTOR, which is like one of the largest online um, uh, source, like uh, primary source, well, mostly secondary source database, but we're partnered with JSTOR so that you can search on JSTOR and find PDFs uh, that are coded with all the right, all the metadata and whatever for all of these newsletters from Roanoke right now from 1971 to the early 90s. So as we're, we're working through the 90s still to digitize and then the amount of volume, the amount of material gets more and more as we get closer to the present. But we're making all this stuff accessible online. You can download PDFs and read these. So that's one, one way we're doing queer history. Another way is oral histories. And this is not an oral history interview that you see here, because this is in a coffee shop and I would not recommend doing a oral history interview in a loud coffee shop. But this is an image from a public radio program that we partnered with that um, you can look it up later, um, but there's a public radio program. Um, well, in, in, in Virginia, there's a program with good reason. They're the ones that produce this and it's been syndicated now around the country. But my friend Cass here is interviewing Peter and Don. They're both African-American gay men around their 60s and their 60s and asking them about what life was like as black gay men in the 70s in Roanoke, which was a period of desegregation um, in, in Roanoke and what that experience was like. This became a radio piece that's called The Lost Queer World of Roanoke, Virginia. And I encourage you to go online and check it out. But it's an interview, and so I use this to illustrate the, the fact of, that interviewing people and doing oral histories is so important. And it's particularly important because this archive, all these newsletters, is overwhelmingly focused on the lives and values and experiences of white, cisgender, middle-class gay men and lesbians. There are no newsletters, there are no publications from Roanoke in the past 50 years that focus on the lives of queer people of color, that focus on the lives of trans people. Um, there's only one newsletter that focused on women. Um, so we can do queer history with printed material and historians tend to favor the printed archive as like the ultimate truth. But when we're thinking queerly about the past, we have to really move beyond the printed text because it's a very, very selective archive. But we have to do interviews in order especially to recenter the voices of queer people of color, of sex workers, of trans and non-binary people, um, etc. So we've used oral history, and in the book you'll see this too, particularly to bring out the voices of Roanoke's Black LGBTQ community and Roanoke's trans community. We also realized early on that it's not enough just to collect stories and put them in the archive. The interviews go in the archive, the newsletters go in the archive, and we can and we just say we're done and walk away. That's not ethical. 
Um, that's not a good practice because the stuff is just going to sit there and no one's going to know about it and it's not going to be used. So it's not really doing history, in my opinion. And it's certainly not living queer history. So we realized early on that we have to do programming and museums like this one know that. You have to do outreach, you have to do public programming, you have to bring the history to, to communities and work with communities to bring them in um, to work with the material. So one of the ways we've done that for the past six years now is to offer free monthly walking tours in Roanoke. We now have three different neighborhoods in Roanoke that we do these queer walking tours in. Um, I know in Richmond you could have something like this. I've been on a Richmond queer bus history bus tour, but um, you know if Roanoke has three different uh, two-hour-long tours that we've done, I, I know we could do that in Richmond too. So we do all these free walking tours. All of our tour guides are just LGBTQ people. They're not students. They're not historians. They're just local queer people who live in the city, and I work with them um, to train them and they do their thing. We never charge ever for tours. We do the tours for private groups too, and we never ever charge, so I'll just volunteer. Um, so this picture, it's actually uh, my ex who's in the book a lot is leading this tour and they are pointing out across the street, you don't see, but across the street was a house that in the 1970s was like an all gay activist house, like a gay collective house, which was pretty awesome. And this is in Old Southwest, which is the neighborhood I live in, which is the city's historic neighborhood or gay neighborhood. And you actually see in this photograph, standing there in the suit on our tour is Joe Cobb, who is the first openly gay elected official in Roanoke. He's on our city council. This photo was from when he was campaigning for his council seat and he came on a queer history tour as part of, I don't know if he was campaigning that moment, but he took time out of the campaign to learn more queer history. So, okay, we also, uh, we also do exhibits, we also do youth programming, and we do historical reenactments, which you'll read about in the book, if you get the book, gay historical reenactments, which is very fun. Um, but in terms of images, we also have a podcast. So when the COVID-19 pandemic began, we had to shut down all of our walking tours and all of our programs that we do in physical space. So we thought, well, what can we do to bring this history to the, to the masses virtually. So we started a podcast. This is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to it. It's the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ plus history project. We've got three episodes so far. When the COVID crisis began, many queer people were talking about parallels between the AIDS crisis and COVID-19. So we realized how important it would be to make an episode about the HIV AIDS crisis in Roanoke. So we released that just a few months into the uh, shutdown in the spring of 2020. Then in the summer of 2020, uh, in the national uprising after the murder of George Floyd, we found that queer people in Roanoke were having conversations about policing and wondering about the history of the policing of LGBTQ communities. So actually students at Roanoke College that next semester made this 30 minute long episode um, they're using excerpts from our oral history collection and um, all kinds of stuff to tell the story of the Roanoke Police Department and the history of policing of queer people and the intersections with, with race and racist policing in Roanoke. 
And then I have a student, just one student who created this whole lesbian feminist history episode about the Lavender Menace um, recently as well. We have uh, episodes coming up in the next year, one about black LGBTQ history in Roanoke, maybe one about queer housing history, the history of LGBTQ housing and housing issues. So that's something we work on. There's also a huge LGBTQ community library in Roanoke. I don't know if any of you know about that. About 20 some years ago, gay and lesbian activists in Roanoke founded a co queer community library at a time when the local public library was not carrying gay titles. And this is before Amazon or whatever. So, and we did have one gay bookstore in town um, but if there was a need that activists felt to create a community lending library. So when I showed up in Roanoke in 2015, this was pointed out to me once people heard I was a historian. And I went to this room in a church, in our MCC church, which is a gay church. And there was this room full of boxes and boxes of books of this defunct library. And our project was like, well, this is history. What do we do with this? So, um, this is what it looks like now. It's inside the Roanoke Diversity Center, which is our LGBTQ community center. So the Diversity Center is managing the library now after we've moved it and we totally recataloged the whole thing. We created a new online catalog and we've worked with uh, li local librarians. Um, we have an LGBTQ book club that's been running every month for the past three years. We have a graduate student intern right now who's doing an MLIS degree, who's working on the library to develop new programming and ways to build the collection. So this is just another example of where queer history lives, right? It, it lives in these boxed up books. What do we do with this thing? How do we activize and, and make this 20 year old library current and meaningful and accessible and important to queer people today. So that's something we're still working on. Uh, this is just an image of that radio piece I told you about. It's called How to Go Clubbing from With Good Reason. So you can check that out. All right, um, let me look at the time. I have some questions for y'all to think about from tonight's talk. And then I will end with a reading. But for those of you here, I'm assuming many of you here live in Richmond. So when you think about the communities that you live and work in, how does queer history live here? Where is it? Where do you sense it? Where do you see it? Is it in plaques? Is it in the museum? Uh, it is now. Uh, <laughs> it, it, um, is it, uh, do you know your elders, your queer elders? Um, have you been on that bus tour that I've been, the LGBTQ history bus tour? So like, where does the queer history live here? Um, and how does it live? Does it live in the lives of LGBTQ activism today? Is Are we historically informed? Does it live in our queer spaces today? I don't know, but I'm going to babes later tonight. So I'll have my, I'll put my, I'll put my PhD hat on. I'll be like, is queer history alive in this space? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what story also what stories are hidden here and why are they hidden so in Roanoke this is a big theme that we've thought a lot about it's why do our queer histories like Christie's legal fight why do these get forgotten who who makes them forgotten um 
is our city government involved in uh, suppressing stories? Is uh, the state government involved in suppressing stories? Are our museums and cultural institutions involved in suppressing stories? Are our schools involved in suppressing stories? Are queer people themselves, as I write about in the book a lot, is our community itself often involved in actively suppressing certain stories that we're ashamed of or embarrassed of and we don't want to get out there? Um, certainly, yes. Um, how do we find those hidden stories? And how might understanding our local queer histories make life better for queer people, especially queer youth, today and in the future? How is, can queer history be a tool that activizes our creation of queerer futures that makes Richmond and Roanoke and um, Floyd County and all the spaces that you and I might move through that makes these spaces more livable and lovable and safe and we feel a sense of belonging as queer people. We feel uh, a sense of togetherness as queer people uh, rooted in a shared historical consciousness, right? So what is the power of this history for, for our present and future fights as queer people? All right, I'm going to leave you with a reading and then we'll have a Q&A. So uh, my closing reading is from the conclusion of the book. And I start in Don's apartment, um, Don, you might recall, Don is the one with the winter hat on and the leopard print scarf and the sunglasses. <laughs> Very stylish. Um, this passage starts in Don's apartment um, and goes from there. My friend invites me to attend a holiday party at Don's apartment in Old Southwest. Just a five block walk from my own place on the edge of the neighborhood. I'd never been inside Don's home, and I'm the first to arrive. He gives me a big hug as I enter. As he prepares food, I look up and around at his apartment walls decked floor to ceiling with memorabilia from 60 plus years of life and work. Relics of his musical career, the people that he met and befriended over the years, vibrant album covers, all snapshots of a gay black male life in DC, in New York, and in Roanoke. Hal Don even has a signed portrait of Christie, once Roanoke's most famous sex worker, now an ordained minister, on his wall. If there's a museum of black queer excellence in Roanoke, I'm standing in it. It's not lost on me that at this very moment, the local neighborhood organization is holding their annual holiday parlor tours, an event in which old Southwest homeowners open their castles for an evening and invite a roving crowd of architecture and design fanatics to tour and mingle and spread good holiday cheer. These revelers will not be stopping by Don's apartment and they're really missing out on his magnificently curated walls, his yummy holiday food, and the multiracial queer community that filters in throughout the evening. There are two Old Southwests tonight. Perhaps there are two Old Southwests every night. As the night winds on and I work my way through Don's famous holiday punch, 
Friends stop by and I find myself meeting a series of interesting new characters, Old Southwest folks I have not yet met. A white straight couple, a black sexually fluid woman, a formerly incarcerated white man. I hear stories of the shenanigans outside of Sunnyside Market, one of the few small convenience stores left in our neighborhood, and about Don's famous parties of yesteryear. I think about how just down the street, indeed on this same block, live several well-to-do white cisgender gay men in single family homes. We all know one another. There's no animosity between these gay worlds. And yet Don's Christmas party is a particular kind of gay world, multiracial, multigender, cross-class. This is the old Southwest that I have come to love. This is the one that I want to fight for. On Christmas Eve, I attend services at the local Metropolitan Community Church. Roanoke's congregation has existed since 1986 and today is led by an outspoken white lesbian pastor. As the music swirls up into the caverns of this magisterial sanctuary, a former Methodist building, church building in Southeast Roanoke, I look around and I count 20 people, nearly all white and mostly to my eyes, lesbians. Indeed, there are more butches here than I've seen in a long time reminding me of just how segregated our queer community is. Perhaps MCC is Roanoke's last living lesbian space. I don't think so, but there's an air of melancholy on this solemn night. My students this year will work with the pastor to develop plans for LGBTQ senior care for this congregation. I'm grateful for the warm welcome from the butch seated in front of me who turns around and wishes me, a misplaced trans feminine Jew, a very Merry Christmas. I feel welcome and safe within these walls. After church, I walk through the neighborhood and through the dark yet peaceful streets to my friend's house. There are four white trans people there, five now, including me. We drink spiked cider and watch bad Christmas movies as the clock ticks from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day. I love these spaces. Dawn's home, a gay church, an all trans house. I love the ways we continue to organize how we're able to find one another in this city of 100,000 people how despite our own segregation with gay women over here and men over there, trans folks here and cis folks there, black queers here and white folks there, there always remains the possibility of not knowing everyone, of yet getting to know them, of learning how to love them and support them. Of course, there are also spaces that are disappearing the city is becoming more heteronormative. Downtown is unrecognizable. We face many more years ahead of white supremacy and transphobia in Appalachia. We face the disappearance of older forms of queerness and the emergence of beautiful, vibrant new ways of embodying gender and sexuality. The work of community-based public history is ongoing, 
as we document the queer worlds of yesteryear and plan for the dawn of a new queer world. Thank you. If you have a question, a question. give me a shout. Well, thank you. I thought I really learned a great deal with your presentation. Do you still practice Judaism? Um, I would say um, I'm what you would call a secular Jew. Um, so I, I, I keep the Sabbath and I celebrate holidays, but I do so absent of faith in the religious beliefs. Um, so I do it culturally as a connection with my heritage. And a couple other things, if you could. Would you explain to me the purpose of why you prefer to be called a pronoun? What 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 is the thinking behind that? And I'll conclude with what do you teach at Rono College? What is your subject matter? Sure. Thank, thank you. Thank you for the questions. So I teach, I was hired to teach public history, which I mentioned that term in the last section I read there. Public history refers to all the ways that we do history outside of the traditional academic realms of books and the ivory tower, the, you know, the academic classroom. So public history includes museums, historic preservation, oral history, walking tours, archeology, span um, historical reenactments, you name it, right? So it's all the ways the public engages in the past and it's it's quite diverse. So in doing our queer history work, we do many of those different methods of preservation, of oral history, of exhibits, of walking tours. So that's public history, which is what I was hired to teach. Now I also, I do teach, um, I now teach gender and women's studies and I teach courses in LGBTQ history, but I was not hired to do that, um, but I've forced my way into. It is, yeah. So um, it is. I offer a course in transgender history. Whole course is about the history of transness, trans people. Um, I offer an LGBTQ studies course at the upper class level, so mostly with seniors. Um, I mentioned the students in that reading that it did that work with uh, creating a senior care program for a gay church. That's my upper class um, queer students. They've done millions of community projects and they do oral, they do professional oral histories, which I train them in. Um, and I teach intro to gender and women's studies. So yeah, Rono College offers these classes. And um, about pronouns, we all use pronouns. It's one of the most common forms of the English language that we're always using all the time. We say, he did this, she did that, they did this. Um, so we use, in English language, the, those pronouns are gendered, maybe unnecessarily so, but they are. So we are constantly referring to people in the third person using he, she, they, etc. So my interest in being referred to by any pronouns is that uh, I think you'd have a hard time speaking in English to me if you didn't use one. Uh, <laughs> you'd have to use my my give. You'd have to use my name every single time. Say um, 
you know, Dr. Rosenthal did this, Dr. Rosenthal that, and never use he, she, or they. So we all use these pronouns all the time. And queer people don't have any special interest in using them more or differently than the way that um, straight cis people do. Hi, thank you. Um, I really did uh, appreciate your presentation today. And um, the one thing that really came to my mind, you were speaking about the parts of our history that a lot of people want to end up kind of forgetting about. It reminded me of a case that happened back in Richmond 25 years ago where there was a murder. And the murder ended up being involved with several members of the gay community. Um, and I was hoping that that could have been somewhat of a teachable moment for, for people and uh, an opportunity to come together and to learn more about um, bullying. And it was a situation where it just really got out of hand. If you ever have the means to check it out, it's the uh, Stacey Hanna murder, Richmond, Virginia, 1997. Um, and that being said, my, my question is, how are you able to um, have that relationship now with your family um, up north now that you've had that perspective of things um, in Roanoke. My mother was from Roanoke, so I have that interesting perspective. And my father is a native Richmonder with the last name Mari. So if you know anything about history, the Mari monument, it's gone. Um, so just, you know, I wanted to know how your life is different now that you've experienced some things from the Southern perspective. Yeah. Um, I Thank you for sharing the story that I'll check out too about Richmond's history. Um, you know, I think I love Roanoke. I um, I have tenure now at Roanoke College, so I'm I'm foreseeing being there for a while and bought a house in the neighborhood that I'm turning into a little queer commune myself. So, um, so I have lots of dreams to be in Roanoke for for many decades. It's really nice to be as far away from my family as I am. <laughs> Um, but we've actually made a lot of progress. So, and in the conclusion of the book, I do bring the story with my, with Alan and my mom and dad back. Um, and I give a bit of an update in the end of the book that we, we've made progress. We've definitely made progress. You know, they, they refer to me as, uh, their daughter and use my name and pro my but they use my correct pronouns rather than just any pronouns. Um, and so um, we've made, we've, we've definitely made progress. They went to PFLAG meetings, which is a great historic organization that's focused on, uh, on helping parents and families and friends of queer people so that we don't have to do the emotional labor to try to make you understand it. So they, they finally went to PFLAG meetings where they live and that helped them a lot. Um, was there another part of the question or was it mostly family? Uh, it was mainly family and how oh. that's changed your, like living in the South, like how that's changed your perspective because like living and growing up in a certain area, you have a, this, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, you have a certain dynamic that you're used to, certain, um, uh, certain cultures that you're used to. I guess my question would be, what did you find that was hardest for you to be able to adjust living in the South versus living up North for as long as you, as long as you did? Um, it's interesting because I think, so everyone's experience is different. Mine is very much that my 31 years living in New York and in the Northeast, 
I was not an out queer person. My whole experience as a queer person, pretty much my whole experience as a queer person, my whole experience of transitioning and living as a trans woman has been in Southwest Virginia, in Roanoke, um, and traveling through Appalachia and traveling through the South. And so it's interesting. I have talked to people back in New York about this. When I go back to New York City, which I do quite a bit, see friends, lovers, family, whatever. When I go back to New York City, I feel very um, like I don't belong there because my only experience of having lived there in the past was as a straight man. And so it's like, and it's strange, I feel so much safer as a trans woman in Roanoke than in New York, which might seem paradoxical, at least to New Yorkers, that would seem paradoxical. So, you know, I think I, I try not to make, um, I, I try not to do what I did before I moved to Roanoke, which is to make stereotypes about Northern versus Southern uh, cultures or whatever. Because I think that there's, there's not any, there's not any hard and fast truths across the board in these places where we live. Roanoke is extremely multicultural and there's really not like a Southern experience or a Roanoke experience. Um, but as I write in the book, my queerness, my transness is Southern born. It's very much rooted to this place. And as I travel around the country and I give book talks and I go to back to my home in New York, uh, every place feels a little less right than Roanoke does. And I wonder about the experience of other, uh, particularly I wonder about trans people who transition and the places associated with that and how how our relationship with place and how, how that might shape our, our experiences. So that's my answer. And of course, also everyone in Roanoke, when I showed up, they're like, sir, sir, sir. I was like, in New York, we don't say sir and ma'am because we're not polite. And, you know, <laughs> but it's actually better because we're not gendering people. <laughs> but I've gotten used to it because now I get called ma'am and I'm like, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a pinball machine. <laughs> Um, so you mentioned how um, a lot of your like research and learning has been um, oral history based. Um, and I was just wondering about uh, since you kind of like now you're a native of Roanoke, but as an outsider at the beginning, um, were you running into any um, people in the community who might have felt unsafe sharing a story or um, just unwilling to give that to someone that hasn't historically been a part of the community in that area. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and not just the Yankee versus Southern and not just insider outsider, but we've also found that, and this has been studied also in oral history theory and writing about oral history. Yeah. We also found that um, when we, when say I was, I write about this in the Book. I've got this chapter called The Whiteness of Queerness, where I interrogate my experience as a white queer person um, and talk a lot about Roanoke's Black queer community. And I write about an one of the first interviews I did when I after I moved to Roanoke. And I have actually, I did very few of the interviews of our project. It's mostly been students who have trained, who've done them, which also creates a trust issue because it's like, who are these students? But um, 
you know, I write about this, one of the earliest interviews I did with uh, Peter, who is the other black gay man, not Don, but the other one in that photograph that you saw. And I'm in his home and um, I'm like, okay, I want to ask him about his experience like of desegregation when he was a kid here. And like, let's talk about like racism within the queer community and stuff. And um, I write about in the book, like the interview was kind of awkward and like, moved in weird directions because of this kind of tension around race. And it was partly also because like his husband is white and was sitting like also right there too. And so Peter's saying things and like looking over at his husband when he's saying them. And I'm like, this is like, there's so much um, intersubjectivity as we would call it going on here where we're influencing what people are, what each other is saying. Um, and so yeah, racial difference, um, led to interviews sometimes not happening or happening strangely. Don's, Don's interview, for example, he almost tried to pull it after we did it. He said, okay, I'm not, I don't want this to be part of the collection because you didn't uphold your side of the bargain. And I said, what was that? And he said, you need to get me profiled in the Roanoke Times. And I said, we never said you would be profiled in the Roanoke Times. But you know what? Two years later, I got he I got him profiled in the Roanoke Times. So I'm a woman of my word. But um, so yeah, um, age differences, differences in sexuality. So my students sometimes I have straight cis students who are going out and doing these interviews, and they're trained and they're capable and they can do them. But um, sometimes the narrators, the elders, say like, "Are you gay?" Because you know. I, why am I talking to you kind of thing? So yeah, it's it's really complicated. And I hope in the book, I, I try to really explore how doing oral history is always messy and there is no right way to pair an interviewer with a narrator. It's not the right thing to always put people of the same sameness of a demographic sameness together. That's not any more right or wrong. Um, so we just need to embrace the messiness and understand that every interview is being shaped by the different people in the room. And that's a beautiful thing, um, but it's, it's, always, uh, it's always subjective. It's always shaped by our presences. Do we have time for one more? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was uh, very struck by the passage you read in your concluding remarks from the conclusion of your book about how in capturing this queer history, you sometimes run into some tensions between um, older generations and their notions of living queer and changing, you know, evolving um, manifestations of that. And I'm wondering if you've found that your approach to the archive um, has changed. How has that maybe that that those intergenerational changes and evolutions have maybe impacted the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ project? Yeah, um, I think as, as I read about the book chronicles the first five years of the project up until around the when the pandemic started. And I write about in the book, we, there were times when we walked on eggshells around those intergenerational conflicts, even just the name of the project, LGBTQ plus, and there are people who are like, what is the plus? What is the Q? <laughs> Why is the T there? Um, the term queer, we've had debates with people around, you know, elders in Roanoke, I'm sure this is true in Richmond too, grew up at a time when queer was used as a slur against them. A lot of young people today 
you know, might identify as queer. It's a very celebratory term for many folks. So we've, I describe meetings in the book where, you know, we're just talking, screaming at each other across the room about what queer means. And somebody, some young person is saying, I am queer. You can't take this word from me, you know? And then the elder is saying, this word hurts me every time you say this. It's like a dagger in me. It's like, how do we resolve this? Um, and I think the, the the only thing I know what to do is that we need to keep everyone in, together in the room. We need to make sure everyone feels welcome. Um, this happened with the trans history. I have a chapter about all about trans history. And people would argue, you know, this person wasn't really trans, but this person was, you know, this person was just a crossdresser or this, you know, and it was like, you don't get to define what, what trans is, but then they would say to me also, okay, but you don't get to define, you know, just because you're a PhD or whatever, you don't get to define who's trans and who isn't. So I think LGBTQ history is a minefield, especially with all the terms of, of inter it's an intergenerational minefield to try to figure out what language we should use to even just describe these experiences. And I think, you know, my advice on it is just that is to keep the tent as big as possible. And that people have had many different ways, different kinds of experiences of queerness, of transness. I've used those as umbrella terms over time. And the language that people use for themselves and their own experiences is the language that we should honor and we should use to, uh, to tell their stories. Um, but we we all but we do need umbrella terms language to describe what ties us together as well. And I think that this that would this will continue to be a debate and a source of conflict for LGBTQIA plus communities, queer communities. Um, but I think it's a productive thing. It's it's if we can bring queer communities together, cross-class, uh, multiracial, intergenerationally, and have those conversations, we can learn a lot about each other and about our shared and not shared experiences. And I think it helps, you know, I think for our elders in Roanoke, it has helped them better understand the young queer people having those conversations. And it has certainly helped the queer youth to better understand the experiences of their elders. All right, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Great. I'll leave my water. Oh, yeah.